Section 4 of Prince and Heretic. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Chapter 4 The St. Bartholomew Wedding. Anna of Saxony stood at the top of the wide stairs of Leipzig Town Hall waiting to welcome her bridegroom. About her spread the motionless pageantry of harquebusiers, burgergard, nobles, gentlemen, and pages, all ranged up the stairs and on the landings in groups of brilliant colors and shining weapons. It was St. Bartholomew's Day, the 24th of August, and intensely hot. The air of the town hall, though constantly refreshed with perfume sprays, was close and dry. Through the windows, carefully shuttered against the heat, the sun crept in through odd chinks and made spots of dazzling gold. The pages sighed under their breath. The gentlemen heaved their shoulders under the heavy weight of velvet, brocade, and jeweled chains. The ladies behind the bride swayed to and fro with little whispers and glances among themselves. The electress stood slightly apart, covertly fanning herself and lamenting to the bride's uncle, the landgrave William, son of the old landgrave of Hesse, that the electoral palace, which was so much more commodious than the town hall, should be under repair. The bride herself stood in advance of all, on the very edge of the top stair. Her eyes were directed fiercely down between the two rows of soldiers that glittered against the dark wood balustrades. The long weeks of tumultuous days and sleepless nights had reduced her feebleness to utter exhaustion, but passionate excitement supported her and gave her the strength to stand there bearing the weight of her heavy robes, the heated air, the fatigue of standing. The elector, with four thousand nobles, gentlemen, and soldiers, had ridden to meet the bridegroom and his escort outside the city. To those waiting here, the return of Augustus and his guest seemed wearisomely delayed. "'Why do they not come? Why do they not come?' muttered Anna again and again. René Lemung, who stood close behind, remarked her mistress's gorgeous figure with a tired curiosity. The waiting woman was herself so remote in heart from all this festivity which she stood in the center of, so far in spirit from all the excitement by which she was surrounded, that these people seemed to her, in a strange way, lifeless, splendid puppets like those the tailor had brought on the polished wood gallows, and when she looked at the bride she was sorry, in a vague way, that Anna was not more lovely, more gracious, more sweet. The long-stifled romance of her own youth told her the central figure of all this pageantry should be more worthy." Since seven that morning, Anna had stood on her feet, being attired, and it was now towards two of the clock, the actual time of the wedding being five. All those hours of her women's labor and fatigue, her own screaming impatience and trembling nervousness, had resulted in an appearance almost grotesquely brilliant. She wore a gown of stiff satin, interchangeable wine red and yellow, the color of old amber. It flowed fold on fold from her tight waist, to fall heavily on the floor, weighted by a hem of ruby and topaz embroidery. In front, it was slightly caught up by a gold cord to display a petticoat of black and crimson brocade and a design of flowers, and the pointed shoes cloth of gold with red silk tissue roses. The bodice was crimson cloth of gold, cut low in the front and rising behind to a high upstanding collar of finest gold lace. The full sleeves were of pale yellow satin, laced across and across with gold and crimson cords. Round the throat and over the bosom hung strings of pearls and rubies and long chains of curious enamel. The dull-colored hair was crowned by a gold cap sewn with pearls, and long emeralds swung in the ears. 
From Anna's stooping shoulders there hung, despite the heat, an orange mantle lined and bordered with ermine, which lay a full yard on the polished boards behind her. But none of this costly and princely magnificence could disguise the thin, malformed figure, and the fierce fire of the gems only served to make the pale, weary face look like a colorless mask, and colorless she was from her pallid lips to her light brows. Only in her pale eyes burned the flame of her passionate, jealous, eager soul. So she stood, waiting for her lover, as she was pleased to consider him, and Hanea was sorry for her mistress from her heart. And now the doors at the foot of the stairs were opened, and the full August sun fell on the black and orange of the halberdiers, the spearmen, and harquebusiers, the gleaming weapons and fluttering banners that rose above the heads of the crowd that filled the market square. Outside the town hall, the whole splendid cavalcade had halted, and presently, through the broad shaft of sunshine, and in at the doors came the elector, accompanied by several other German princes and the bridegroom, escorted by his three brothers, the Counts John, Adolphus, and Louis. At the foot of the stairs, these gentlemen paused for a second, and among those waiting at the top there was the slightest movement and murmur, a bending forward of expectant faces, the rustle of stiff satins. There was indeed great curiosity to behold the bridegroom, many of those present having never seen him before. Hone, more curious because more thoughtful than the others, stepped lightly from behind her mistress and gazed down the stairs. She saw one cavalier come forward from the others and ascend the stairs a little in advance of them. This was he whose fame had traveled so far, who had been so criticized, so discussed in Saxony, whose marriage project had been the subject of so many intrigues and broils in Madrid, Brussels, and Dresden. Slowly he came up the stairs, his eyes fixed on Anna, in himself the subject of all regards. Rene watched him long, intently. This was her first sight of him, and she was long to remember this brilliant scene, long to recall in other scenes of terror, misery, and exultation that figure coming up the stairs with the blaze of sunshine and the little group of princes behind him. This, her first impression of William of Orange, was of a gentleman of extreme good looks, with the carriage of a soldier and the grace of a courtier. He was slender, twenty-eight years of age, and of a southern type, dark, warmly colored, with a small head and regular features, the nose straight, the lips full, the eyes chestnut-brown, large and well-opened. His red-brown hair was short, thick, and curling, his beard close-shaven, his complexion dark. He wore still a simple dress of tawny velvet buttoned high under the chin and, turning over with a little collar of embroidered lawn, it was slashed over an undervest of scarlet, and the sleeves and breeches were of black silk fretted with silver work. His one adornment was a long gold chain of massive links passed six times round his neck. He carried his gloves and a black cap with a heron's plume in his left hand. Straight up the stairs he came with an ease that seemed unconscious. Anna swayed towards him. He kissed her cold hand, smiled at her, and stood so a moment beside her, looking down into her pale, almost frightened, face. In that moment, René saw, as by a sudden light, the bride as she was in contrast with him. By the standard of his complete manhood, his finished accomplishment, his undeniable charm, gaiety, and power, she beheld Anna a peevish, sickly, malicious, ignorant child, and she turned her eyes away. This contrast to bride and groom seemed to her to touch this mating with horror. The prince now turned to the electress, and Anna, with a deep reverence to her future husband, withdrew with her women to the apartments prepared for her use. No sooner was she there than her strained control gave way. She scolded, she stamped, and finally broke into hysterical tears. 
The frightened, agitated women ran hither and thither with cordials and essences and all the details of the resplendent wedding gown with which their mistress had to be vested. Rene, a little bewildered by the sight of the Prince of Orange, went about her duties quietly. She believed she knew the cause of Anna's untimely tears. Deep beneath the princess's vanities, ignorances, and arrogances lay a woman's intuitions. These warned her, sometimes in a manner not to be ignored, that she was crooked, undesirable, and now they told her that the prince's kind glance had not been that of a lover. Anna, too, Rene thought, had felt the bitter difference between herself and her betrothed. At last the bride, alternately shaken by nervous temper and stormy sobbing, was arrayed in the wedding gown of milk-white velvet, overveiled with a skirt of braided pearls, transparent silver wings rising at the back in lieu of a ruff, and over all a train of pale purple embroidered with crystal flowers. A wreath of myrtle twisted with an orange ribbon was placed on the stiff waves of her crimped hair. The traces of tears were powdered away as well might be. The rings, necklets, bracelets, chains were replaced. She was perfumed with costly essence extracted from eastern lilies, then escorted to an upper chamber where waited the elector, the electress, two town councillors, the Prince of Orange, and his brother counts. All the women now withdrew save the electress's ladies, Sophia von Militz and René. In a corner, before a table, stood one Wolf Sesdel, a notary. The Prince of Orange had changed his attire. He was in rose cloth of gold from head to foot, with a short cloak of dark violet velvet lined with blue, and a triple ruff of gold tissue. René glanced at him again. A mere courtier like his brother, she thought. Her eyes turned to Count John. He, too, was a princely young man, though without the great charm of William or the infinite grace of Louis. Bride and groom were now placed opposite each other before the notary, his brother and one of his gentlemen behind the prince, Dame Sophia, one of the counsellors, and René behind Anna, in front elector and electress with Hans von Plenica, the second counsellor, who addressed the prince, reminding him that the elector had sent him a memorandum requiring him to preserve Anna in her present faith, to allow her to receive the Augsburg sacraments, even, at extreme need, in her chamber, and to instruct her children in the doctrines of the Reformed Church. This memorandum William had always refused to sign. He listened to the counsellor's long speech courteously, but with a look of amusement, René thought, as if he appreciated at its true value this last attempt on the part of Augustus to salve his conscience on the question of the bridegroom's papistry. "'As your princely highness,' continued von Ponica, "'has been pleased to so far give no agreement in writing on these points, "'it has been arranged that you should now give your consent verbally, "'before these princely witnesses.' William, with laughing eyes and a grave face, looked at the elector, whose stern features were impassive. Anna was trembling like one in a fever, and continually pressing her handkerchief to her dry lips and burning cheeks. Von Ponica proceeded to read the memorandum which William had rejected since April last, and asked if his highness was prepared to keep the articles contained therein. The prince advanced a step towards the elector, and answered. Hanan noticed his voice, low, deep, and soft, a very masculine voice. "'Gracious elector, I remember the writing that you sent me in April, and which this learned doctor has just read. I now declare, your highness, that I will act in all as becomes a prince, and conform to this note as I ever said I would conform.' This evasion was all the elector had hoped for. He knew as well as William did that no subject of King Philip could live according to the Augsburg Confession, nor practice the rites of the Reformed Church. But he had finally satisfied his conscience, and when William offered his hand, the elector took it heartily. The notary then put the prince's reply on record, and all left the room. 
The bridal procession was now formed. In front, the court musicians playing bravely, after them the marshals, the nobles, the guests, the envoys, the elector and his wife, and the bride and groom, followed by the counselors and such of the Netherland grandees who had dared King Philip sufficiently to attend a wedding his majesty secretly frowned upon. So, to the sound of drums and trumpet, they entered the great hall, which was hung from ceiling to floor with fine silk tapestries of arras and carpeted with eastern rugs, and furnished with five round tables and chairs, each chair like a throne. There the marriage ceremony took place. If the elector had tacitly accepted William's evasions on religious questions, William has tacitly accepted the Lutheran marriage rites, which would have been little to the taste of King Philip. After Dr. Pfeffinger had united the two, Anna was conducted to a gold couch with gold curtains set on a dais at the upper end of the hall. The prince seated himself beside her, and kneeling pages of noble blood handed them goblets of rock crystal filled with sweet wine, and comfits on plates of engraved silver. The rest of the company were also served, and all drank standing and looking towards the bride. Anna's spirits had now risen, she was flushed with pride and happiness, her eyes sparkled, and she drank her wine with a relish. The prince had rather an absent look, though completely at his ease. His mind did not appear to be wholly in the ceremonies in which he was taking part so gracefully. He now rose, and the margrave of Brandenburg raised Anna and presented her to her husband. "'Gracious Highness,' he said, "'I give you this maiden on behalf of the elector, and I recommend your grace to cherish her with all care and affection, and to leave her undisturbed in the right use of the holy gospel and sacraments.' The bridal couple parted, to a second time changed their garments. Anna was in a rapture. "'Is he not noble and fine?' she asked her weary woman as they again disrobed her. "'I think there is no knight like him in Europe. And how foolish my uncle is with his notes and promises, as if I could not trust my princely husband.' She used the new title with an affected laugh. "'I am now the Princess of Orange,' she added. "'Yes, Highness,' said Hone. She was weary from the long hours of standing, her head ached from the noise of the drums and trumpets, the glare of all the mingled gems and flashing gold and the bright colors of the dresses, the intensity of the heat and lack of food. None of the overworked women had eaten since morning. The kitchens were wholly absorbed in preparations for the wedding feast. Anna's shrill, excited chatter fell distastefully on the ears of Hane. "'What will they think of her in Brussels?' she wondered. It seemed grotesque to imagine her the head of the Prince of Orange's gorgeous and extravagant household, the greatest lady in the brilliant court of the regent. But Anna, at least, seemed not to doubt at all of coming triumphs. As she was arrayed, she talked incessantly of her future glories. She now wore a gown of blue satin with an overskirt of silver brocade worked with raised yellow roses. Her bodice was one stiff piece of silver as if she was encased in the precious metal itself. Her long yellow sleeves were caught together and fastened with sapphire studs. Her bosom was bare, but round her throat was a fine ruff reaching to her ears and sparkling with little brilliance. Her hair was confined under a cap of silver tissue, and from her shoulders hung a mantle of darker yellow satin with a great collar of rose velvet and a lining of blue. Thus she returned to the great hall, where covers for fifty were laid, ten at each table, and the first course of twenty-five dishes being immediately served. She took her place beside her husband, who wore crimson satin cut over violet cloth of gold, and so sewn with gold that no more than a gleam of the stuff was visible. The elector's choir began to play a gay measure, and twelve young counts with gold wreaths on their heads brought forward the wine, the water, the napkins for the use of the bride and groom. 
It was now past six, and the great heat diminishing. Hanay and the other women went slowly about the princess's apartments, putting straight the disorder and beginning to lay by the gowns and the long-traveling coffers. The sound of the bridal music came faintly to their ears, and faintly they could savor the mingled odors of the extravagant wedding dishes. As they moved about their task, they ate cakes and comfits, having little hope of a supper that night, and in an entire disjointed way they talked together. "'She is quite right. He is very handsome,' said one, "'and very magnificent, too. "'They say he is greatly in debt.' "'Well, there will not be much of a fortune left to repair holes in his,' replied another. "'Such extravagance! "'And she looks all the uglier for it all. "'And I hear he is fond of pretty women.' "'The speaker glanced with some satisfaction at her own pleasing reflection in Anasmir. "'Was his first wife well favored? "'Well, she was straight and had a quiet tongue. "'Herr Jesus! "'Why should he wed Fräulein Anna?' cried another damsel, wearily seating herself. "'Not for her beauty nor her money!' "'For their reasons of state,' quoted Hane, "'and also because he does not know her. "'This will prove an ugly marriage. "'He does not look a man to suffer a cursed wife. "'Perhaps she will be sweeter now,' replied the other. "'There is no sweetness in her,' said a third, "'gathering up the bunches of lavender, "'allspice leaves, rosemary, and orse root "'that were to be laid among the bride's clothes "'and the long-carved caskets. "'How my head aches,' said Hane. It is her voice, replied one of the women. It rings in the head like the clanging of a brass bell. Come and see the dancing. We can lead this work for a while. Hone and three of her companions slipped away and went by the back entrances to the gallery overlooking the grand hall. The soldiers allowed them to pass, and the pages brought them sugar sticks, fruit and comfits left from the feast. I am sickened with sweets today, said Hone with a faint smile. She rested her elbows on the carved balustrade of the gallery and looked down. The tables had been removed, and the hall cleared for dancing. The summer sun still shone without, but had left the high windows, and already lamps, hanging to the ceiling bosses by gold chains, were lit, sending a soft light over the polished floor and silk hangings on the wall. The choir was singing and playing, and the court and guests were moving through one of the elaborate figures of the prearranged dances. The ladies in their great farthingales, stiff bodices and long trains, the gentlemen in their huge ruffs, formal cloaks, embroidered doublets, and gleaming chains, moved slowly and precisely through the intricacies of the dance, as if they traced some complicated pattern on the floor with their fine and sparkling shoes. To René they seemed as if they were being moved by invisible strings from the dark ceiling, so many puppets moving with stiff grace and immobile dignity. She sought out the rose-red and gold figure of the Prince of Orange. He was dancing with the Electress. She noticed that he moved with more spirit and gaiety than any of the others, also that he kept bad time to the music, and more than once was a little out of step in the long galliard he had not previously rehearsed. The dance at an end the bride and groom returned to their gold couch, and a band of maidens in green and purple entered the hall and presented them with long sheaves of lilies bound with silver cords, round bunches of crimson and white roses, sprays of myrtle blossom, and parcels of sweets and gold tissue. After this, the chamberlain clapped his hands, and a party of maskers ran in, curiously habited as Turks, Russians, fools, bird snares, and giants, and began executing a fantastic measure. "'The prince brought them from the Netherlands,' said one of the waiting women. "'It is a silly show,' replied Hone, "'or else I have no heart for these things.' She left the gallery and returned to Anna's temporary apartments, which would no longer be used as others had been prepared for the prince and princess. 
Honet mechanically sorted and folded the confusion of garments, locked away the hastily discarded jewels, arranged the brushes, combs, unguents, crimping irons, curling sticks, powders, perfumes, that had been used in the adornment of the bride, then opened the curtains and stepped out of the narrow window onto the little curved balcony that overlooked the market square. The pale purple sky spread, stainless of cloud above the roofs, gables and towers. The bells were ringing gay peals from all the chiming belfries of Leipzig. Joy fires flared up here and there against the crystal light of the stars. The breeze was perfumed with the scent of summer, and still sun-warmed. Juané was not thinking of the gaiety and loveliness of the festival night. Through her mind ran a few sentences she had overheard from two Netherlanders of the prince's suite as she went up the back staircase to see the dancing. "'How long will these feasts last?' one had said. "'The cardinal plays his own game at home. It would be well to return immediately.' "'They say he will persuade the king to enforce the Inquisition,' the other answered. "'So resolute is he to extirpate heresy.' And the two men had looked stern, gloomy, and anxious for guests at a bridal feast, and René recalled their words with a bitter shudder. It was the Inquisition that had arrested her father and handed him over to his death. It was the Inquisition that had confiscated his entire property and left her mother and herself dependent on charity. Her face grew hard and almost fierce. Extirpate heresy, she said half aloud. Well, I will die that way, too. The joy fire sprang up and the bells and the music blended. Presently the stars faded in the light of the risen moon. St. Bartholomew's Day was over and the famous marriage accomplished at last. End of section four.